there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 147. In for a penny, in for a pound. I was able to breeze through the sequence of events for the Japanese occupation of Manchuria a couple weeks ago, because the act of taking the northeast of China was just that, a breeze. The incumbent administration of Zhang Zhulang was corrupt as hell, and already on shaky ground, and Chiang Kai-shek didn't want any part of having a showdown with the Japanese in late 1931. So, a strategy of non-resistance was forced onto Zhang. All the Japanese had to do was ride the rails, and the major urban centers fell into their hands, more or less without a fight. Except, occupations are never quite that easy, even when the other side tries to forfeit. Manchuria was simply too big a region for the Japanese to overrun instantly, and their presence was predicated on getting local support. Because in addition to being too big, it was also too heavily populated for the scanty Kwantung army. By late 1931, it stood at only 65,000 men strong, and while those numbers would certainly grow, it wasn't a massive enough force to secure an area around the sides of Texas. That's why today I'm going to be covering the establishment of Japanese control of the region, how they made use of local conditions to facilitate that control, and finally some of the campaigns launched to the southeast of Manchuria. Because having just secured a new imperial frontier to help safeguard the older parts of the empire, a new wave of Japanese officers came to the conclusion that a further extension of that frontier was needed to protect Manchuria in turn. A vicious cycle that would see localized conflicts spring up between Japan and China all the way up to the formal outbreak of war in 1937. A couple weeks ago, in covering the occupation of Manchuria, you might have wondered what the ordinary Chinese citizens thought of Zhang's downfall and their occupation by a foreign power. Well, the feeling certainly wasn't one of mass outrage. Zhang might have inherited his father's position as chief of the region's warlords and local governments, but that didn't earn him any real loyalty. Pretty much everybody was sick of conflict after the numerous wars in the 20s, and Zhang's increasing prominence in the KMT camp as a supporter of Chiang Kai-shek was not reassuring given the numerous civil wars Chiang was engaged in. While the young marshal was rewarded for his cooperation with the KMT by having the military districts as far south as Beijing and Tianjin placed under his command, this also tied down Zhang's attentions further south, and not in his home base of Manchuria. It also raised the specter of him being responsible for more entanglements further south, which had made the Manchurians uneasy. Finally, there had been Zhang's efforts to disentangle his territory from the economic grip of Japan. The Japanese might have murdered his father, but Zhang's efforts to check Japan's economic penetration of Manchuria was actually opposed by local businessmen, as well as the military commanders those businessmen paid off. The Manchurian elites benefited from Japanese investment. Recall that the elder Zheng's own investments in industry had mostly been to serve his armament needs. The Japanese set up enterprises that produced things that could be sold to actual customers and make money. The Manchurian elites had long-standing relationships with the Japanese, ones they didn't want to jeopardize. Zheng's leadership was increasingly seen as a problem, and the entry of the Japanese meant that investment money would soon follow along with them. The main contingent that could be said to have any loyalty to Zhang was the KMT, somewhat ironic given that the Kuomintang were the ones who beat the hell out of the Feng Tian clique back in the days when his dad ran the outfit. I'll cover the dynamics of this relationship in more detail next miniseries, but long story short, the young Zhang was a genuine nationalist 
who desired to be part of a rejuvenated China, and he saw Chiang and the KMT as the clearest pathway towards that. Chiang Kai-shek didn't interfere with Zhang's hold of Manchuria, and Zhang allowed the party apparatus of the KMT to establish offices all around Manchuria. They disseminated propaganda advocating that the Chinese stop doing business with the Japanese and to prepare for a future conflict with them. Obviously, this messaging fell on deaf ears, but the KMT had around 50 offices in the region anyway, and they were among the only ones putting in a good word for Zhang. When the Japanese invaded, these offices were naturally abandoned, but the people who worked in the Northeast would go on to form the Northeastern National Salvation Society, or the NNSS. This was a dedicated propaganda group that would work to get whatever positive news out of Manchuria and disseminate it to China proper in order to get people to support active resistance. Which wasn't exactly what Chiang Kai-shek was advocating for after September 1931, but he had hired nationalists and their feelings did reflect the national mood in those days. Too bad for them, those initial years of the occupation didn't give them a whole heck of a lot of promising news. For many of the local warlords, the Japanese promised a continuity of their status, and the provincial leaderships remained largely intact. In many instances, especially the further north the Japanese went, the local commanders and governors would set up their own councils and committees to run local affairs, leading the Kwantung Army's leadership to set up their own bureau to assume command and coordinate all these spontaneous groups while the details of the occupation were hashed out. And that wasn't an on-the-spot idea either. As early as 1929, the Kwantung's leadership had commissioned a study on how best to administer Manchuria in the event of a sudden occupation, which meant when the invasion actually happened years later, they had their own internal research to work from, and it worked out for them. Just two weeks after inciting the Mukden incident, there was already a council of Chinese notables running the day-to-day affairs of the Liaoning province that comprised the southern part of Manchuria. All of this was helped immensely by the fact that they had been ordered not to provide resistance to the Japanese. Both Chiang Kai-shek and Zheng Zhulang had probably underestimated how far the Japanese would go in their occupation. After all, they had never tried anything on this kind of scale before. Many of Zheng's subordinates had not been ordered to evacuate the region simply because there was the possibility that this excursion was of a far more limited nature than what it turned out to be in reality. Keep in mind, the Chinese leadership did not know the intentions of the Kwantung officers, and probably were a little confused at the mixed signals coming from Tokyo regarding the conduct of operations. Usually when a high command says, stop advancing, you've done enough, the army receiving the order obeys. That the Kwantung was being run by a cabal of mid-level officers in defiance of the army's high command meant it was hard to predict what they'd do next. Then there was the fact that the Japanese, especially early on, operated with a relatively light touch. They bombed a few cities, killed some people here or there, but when it came to the elites, they were conciliatory. They wanted those notables on their side, and the well-to-do responded positively. They took to the papers saying that their qualms were only about the state of the region's economy and governance, and that they looked forward to the new partnership. They emphasized how they had autonomy from both Zhang and the Japanese, but that normal people could expect a smooth continuity in their lives. Which also leads me to point out again that the response among the average Chinese citizen was rather muted. Especially early on, the situation was simply too confused to accurately predict what would happen next. So there was a definite wait and see, just get along, mood in play there. I'll talk about it more next episode, but the ongoing Japanese presence 
was largely tolerated as the eventual state of Manchukuo that covered the region would be the focus of intense Japanese investment, which meant there was a lot of money flowing in, and people do love themselves some enhanced material conditions. This was so much so that people still immigrated in from the south in droves, despite the tension and the fact that they were going to work in a puppet state that was a key part of the empire tormenting their home country. Beyond that, the KMT's own flat response to the crisis and the ever-increasing numbers of Japanese troops meant that it was highly unlikely that the Japanese were leaving anytime soon. So the wait-and-see-just-get-along attitude eventually evolved into a they-aren't-leaving-just-get-along type of attitude. There were some notable Manchurians who tried initially to play a balancing act of placating the Japanese without formally throwing in their lot with them, but in each case, such games were cut short and sides had to be picked. There was the case of Zhang Jingwei, and yes, it's another Zhang, so I'll say his full name each time in a desperate effort to make some differentiation. He was the commander and governor of the Harbin Special Zone, so named because the city of Harbin formed the nexus of the Soviet Union's railway interests in northern Manchuria. So, strictly speaking, Zhang Jingwei had three interests to placate, actually. On September 22, 1931, early on in the invasion and before the Kwantung had reached him, word filtered in that the Japanese were smuggling weapons into the city to start a riot, which they would use as a pretext to occupy Harbin. On the 27th, he declared that he was no longer reporting to the national KMT government, although he maintained his personal loyalty to Zhang Zhulang. For months afterwards, the Japanese and Zhang Jingwei played a delicate game, the Japanese wanted to create an excuse to enter the city as something other than aggressors so as not to provoke the Soviets, while Zhang Jingwei himself tried to smooth over tensions to make sure that excuse didn't present itself. The Harbin police force was expanded so that special protections could be placed on the Japanese quarter of town. Meanwhile, the Japanese tried to rile up the remnants of the anti-Bolshevik white Russian presence in the city. And yes, there were still white Russians living in Harbin, at the same time there was a Soviet contingent that worked on the railway. Just a fun-sounding town. In any event, Zheng Jingwei's position was made untenable when, by the end of 1931, the Soviets indicated they wouldn't oppose a permanent occupation. Although they would go back and forth on supporting future anti-Japanese resistance overall. This was right smack in the middle of the first five-year plan back in the USSR, so things were a little hectic in Moscow at the time. And since by the start of 1932 it was apparent that there would be no relief coming from the southwest, Zheng Jingwei threw in the towel and joined with the Japanese. He kept his position, then got promoted to running northern Manchuria, and even became the second prime minister of Manchukuo from 1935 to that state's dissolution in 1945. Uh, he would eventually be captured by the Soviets and later turned over to the Chinese, where he spent the rest of his life in jail, uh, his name becoming synonymous with collaborator. The case of Ma Zhanshan presents an example of a Manchurian commander who faced similar decisions as Zhang Qingwei, but ultimately went in another direction. Much to the chagrin of the Japanese, these cases were all too numerous, especially early on, before the vast countryside was secured. Ma had risen in the ranks of the Thangtian army, and was the most senior commander present in the city of Chichihar, the capital of Manchuria's northernmost Heliongjing province, at the time of the Mukden incident. He's the one I mentioned as having repulsed an initial foray by Manchurian collaborator troops, and who had forced the Japanese to send their own men to drive him out of the city. They accomplished that, but Ma slipped away and refused to surrender. 
While his example was touted as a fine example of resistance back in China proper, the Japanese sensed an opportunity. They wanted competent officers on their side, collaborating. So they offered him millions of dollars in gold to entice him to join the still-forming Manchukuo government. Ma accepted and headed south to link up with his new bosses. This sounds like a dishearteningly quick surrender, but Ma might have already been planning his next turn. While in the south, he traveled around and spent the money he had received on new armaments, secretly managing to get them sent to his personal troops, who were still very much intact in the north. Just a side note, the corruption of the Manchukuo authorities knew precious few bounds. Its rank and file served the new state in order to materially advance themselves, not out of any patriotism. So if there was a way to make a quick buck, or better yet, a quick gold buck, then they'd take it. And people would definitely look the other way as crates of weapons were loaded onto a rail car and sent north. Ma avoided being present during the formal establishment of Manchukuo, all the better to spare himself the association. Once he felt that he had gotten all he could out of the South, he returned north and on April 7, 1932, declared he wasn't working for the Japanese any longer and that Heilongjiang province was now independent of Manchukuo. Naturally, this set off a firestorm back in Mukden, and Ma became public enemy number one of Manchukuo. A joint Japanese-Manchukuan force marched north and engaged in skirmishes with Ma from April to July 1932. While the Japanese were successful in defeating the Chinese in the field, the Manchukuan auxiliaries failed in keeping up with the Japanese units during an encirclement operation, which allowed Ma to slip away. Linking up with another Chinese commander named Su Bingwen in the mountains along the Soviet border to the northeast, Ma quickly resumed his operations. Japanese civilians were attacked, railways were sabotaged, and he even made a play at stealing some Japanese planes from an airfield. The Kwantung were forced to set out again in September 1932, and from then to January were again sweeping the countryside. This was difficult hill and mountain fighting that went on for months before Ma and his remaining troops were forced to flee across the Soviet border. While Ma would eventually re-enter China and make his way southwards to rejoin Zheng Zhulang's remaining forces around Beijing, this was not the only guerrilla force the Japanese had to contend with. A dozen other major, quote-unquote, anti-bandit operations were conducted over the first two years of the occupation alone, each stretching on for weeks or months. And that doesn't even count the smaller engagements that flared up here and there. Then there were the traditional bandits like the Red Spears. That wasn't a formal group, but a kind of bandit tradition that had spread northwards long before the Japanese had even invaded. So these weren't even ex-Feng Tian guys. They were legit full-time bandits. They didn't get involved in the whole, you know, political angle and simply contented themselves with treating the Manchukuan state just as they had every other faction previously, as sources of plunder. Living outside the main cities in Manchukuo was a dangerous prospect for most of its existence. It also revealed several problems that would bedevil the Japanese in the region for years. First was that while they had successfully gotten the population centers under their control, the Kwantung army hadn't been able to completely secure the Fengtian soldiers. Tens of thousands had refused to throw in with the invaders, and while many headed south to regroup in KMT-controlled areas, more stuck around. Then there were hundreds of thousands more who were demobilized by the Manchukuo government and lacking decent job prospects and having gained at least a little military training, decided to pursue more inventive lines of work. 
Now, this is where both sides have their own stories. The Chinese would look upon these soldiers as guerrilla fighters sticking it out against foreign invaders, while the Japanese and Manchukuans would refer to them as simple bandits, associating them with the region's long-term history of banditry like the Red Spears I just mentioned. The correct viewpoint is that they were both. When possible, these soldiers would act against Japanese authorities, but in the times between operations would live off the land. That meant pillaging for what they needed. And these groups weren't organized anymore either, at least not really. They didn't report to Zhang. Uh, they were all kind of just doing their own thing. For a time, many would declare themselves under Ma's banner, to an extent where he momentarily commanded hundreds of thousands on paper, but effectively they were isolated bands. They weren't terribly well-equipped or trained, as the Fengtian army at its height wasn't any match for the Japanese, but they were numerous. They were also fairly well-motivated, if not to stand and fight, then at least to make a good escape and then fight another day. Uh, fighters captured by the Japanese didn't have prisoner-of-war camps to be sent to, if you know what I mean. And by that, I mean they were executed, so uh, no real point in giving yourself up. Another problem for the Japanese was the Manchukuans themselves. I'm going to get into more detail next week about what drove local Chinese to collaborate and work for a puppet government, but again, it wasn't exactly a sense of patriotism. Working for the Japanese in the cities where one could make some money was one thing. Joining Manchukuo's army and having to take on the burden of fighting your own countrymen for the benefit of the invaders was another one entirely. The army for most of the 30s was between 100 and 150,000 men strong and were overwhelmingly pulled from, from the Fengtian army, which was convenient for the Japanese as it meant they already had weapons and equipment on hand. Unfortunately, they lacked proper training and cohesion, and were still the same old warlord troops that had embarrassed themselves in China since the days of Yuan Shikai. One especially embarrassing example was when a Manchukuan force of some 2,000 men in May 1932, just a month after the army's formal establishment, was scattered by a band of guerrillas. This happened just outside the city of Chengchun, right in the heart of Manchukuo. If they couldn't hold their ground there, they couldn't hold it anywhere. In another case, a similar unit of 2,000 men simply took their weapons and went out to the countryside to fight against the new state as partisans. There were countless cases of Manchukuan soldiers returning to their barracks after deployment without any of their weapons, having surrendered them to the guerrillas they were supposed to have been fighting before returning home. The Kwantung leadership ruefully noted that a steady source of weapons and ammunition for the anti-Manchukuan fighters was their puppet state's own army. There were some efforts made to rectify this sorry state of affairs, as starting in 1934, a law was implemented that officers who had gone through the new government's training schools could command troops, a clear break from the initial policy of simply co-opting Zheng's troops as they were. The Japanese thereafter began purging old officers they found unreliable, dismantling the old warlord network and replacing it with proper state controls. Meaning their controls, ultimately. This was imperative because the nationalist and Fengtian officers were an independent lot, used to managing their domains their way. The first round of Japanese advisors attached to the local military units found that their advice was actually ignored when it suited the local officers, something that alarmed the Japanese. A whole new formation of Japanese troops was set up specifically to embed themselves in the Manchukuan army and manage its every move. The highest ranks were staffed with Japanese officers, who also kept control of who got access to the armories. 
as these were favorite targets of locals who wanted to make a little money and really stick it to the Japanese, as the aforementioned Ma example uh, bore out. Eventually, some loyal Chinese officers were appointed to the high command, and on paper, these Japanese officers were just advisors, but the reality was they actively managed the army. Japanese reservists, ones of not quite frontline quality, were called up on a volunteer basis to embed themselves with Manchukuan units, with advisors showing up in units as small as a battalion, which in this army we're talking about what would amount to just a few hundred men at best. Finally, there were other soldiers who had been passed up for promotion in the Japanese army and were offered a chance to join the puppet state's army as a chance to gain a command. They went through training with the Manchukuans and once cleared to serve, were not even considered advisors. They were just straight up junior officers in the Manchukuan army, directly commanding and leading troops. All this meant the Japanese element was ever present, even at low levels. In August 1934, a proper military administration was set up with a clear chain of command, although training standards would be decidedly mixed, even after the establishment of dedicated training schools in 1938. Then there was a confused situation when it came to armaments. At first, the army used leftover weapons from the Feng Tian days, but attrition steadily ate into those stockpiles, as did the steady flow going over to the partisans. And if you remember episode 68 on the Chinese arms trade, the weapons on hand came from a multitude of sources. So you had equipment from all over the world with different ammunition requirements. The Japanese by the mid-30s resigned themselves to rearming their auxiliaries with their own weapon models. This was easy enough with rifles and light machine guns, but the Manchukuans were chronically short of heavier weapons like artillery pieces and were an even worse spot with regards to anti-tank and anti-air weapons. Not to say that the bandits out in the countryside necessitated a lot of these kinds of weapons, but it meant that the Manchukuans would never develop beyond an internal security force. The truth was that the Japanese were never able to build a proper military force in Manchukuo that was able to act independently. Which really isn't surprising. It's hard to get people to fight for an uninspiring state. My own country, the United States, has undertaken similar projects for generations now, and the failures definitely outweigh the successes. And it wasn't like the Kwantung army was able to fully focus on internal Manchukuan affairs either. They might have occupied Manchuria, but Chiang Kai-shek sure as hell hadn't signed away the region, and the establishment of a puppet state and puppet army didn't change that fact. Zheng Zhuleng still had part of his army operating to the southwest of Manchuria, and he was waging his own personally directed guerrilla war to torment the Japanese. In the eyes of the ambitious Kwantung officers, the solution was to extend Manchukuo's frontier south all the way to the Great Wall of China. Anything north of the wall, they should be able to sweep for partisans with impunity, so as to safeguard their conquest. Ironically, Ishiwara Kanji, the architect of the Mukden incident and the occupation, cautioned against absorbing so much so quickly. He might have been an expansionist, but he didn't want Japan to outrun its capabilities, especially since he considered the main threat to the empire to be the Soviets to the north. But he had since been reassigned back to the home islands, and the next crop of junior officers in the Kwantung admired him more for his boldness than his calculations, and opted to pursue their own dreams of glory, something that would disillusion Ishiwara of his expansionist dreams as time went on. The Japanese initiated renewed hostilities in depressingly familiar fashion. If you remember from the days of the first Zhili-Fengtian War, 
The Shinhaiguan Gate represented the point where the Great Wall reached the ocean and was a vital conduit for passage north or southwards. The Japanese had troops stationed there, despite being actively engaged with the KMT, on account of treaty terms dating back to the Boxer Rebellion in 1901. It was only a couple hundred troops, and here again, Chiang Kai-shek was unwilling to offer any provocation to the Japanese that he didn't have to. The Japanese, though, were all too happy, and some of the troops there staged an incident by starting a minor firefight on New Year's Day, 1933. The Japanese duly asked the Chinese to vacate the area to ensure mutual safety, to which the Chinese refused. The Japanese demonstrated the pre-planned nature of the incident by immediately sending in warships and attack aircraft to bomb the Chinese troops, who were forced to withdraw in the face of overwhelming firepower. With the main conduit northwards cut, the Chinese on the other side of the Great Wall would have to make do with more treacherous inland mountain passes, in the middle of winter. Now, that shouldn't have been entirely fatal, and in fact the main Japanese attack coming from Manchuria couldn't even get underway until February 23rd on account of the hostile terrain and climate conditions. A properly entrenched army, even one chronically short of equipment and staffed by poorly trained soldiers as Zheng's was, could have made the lives of the Japanese miserable. Unfortunately, Zheng's commander on the scene was one Tang Yulin. King Leonidas, he was not. He was assigned control of the Rihi province, which, don't bother looking it up on a map, that one doesn't exist anymore, just know it was the region northeast of Beijing. General Tang's activities consisted of sitting around the regional capital of Zhangde, counting out the fortune he had acquired from looting the province. No preparation had been made for defense, despite, you know, everything going on for the past year and a half. His troops themselves had been starved to enrich himself, and his main priority was buying property in Tianjin. When the Japanese began their advance, his troops either melted away or defected over. The 200 trucks that Tang had been assigned to help mobilize his forces were utilized to ship his own possessions back south. 50,000 Japanese troops were joined by 42,000 Manchukuan ones, and the state of Chinese defenses meant that even the puppet army was able to clear Chinese defenses with ease, netting Manchukuo a rare military triumph and thousands of prisoners. Zhangda would fall in short order on March 4th. Zheng, furious at the poor showing that was remarkable even for warlord-grade troops, ordered Tang to be arrested, forcing the now ex-general to flee with what followers he still had into Inner Mongolia. After that, resistance did gradually stiffen as Chinese forces fell back closer to the Great Wall Passes, and the Japanese extended themselves in the mountains during the winter. By mid-March, the Japanese focused their attacks on those mountain passes through the Great Wall, battles that didn't go quite as well for them as the first phase of the attack. Because these were offensives in narrow passes, the number of troops the Japanese could commit was less, and fighting became brutal for both sides. Dozens of small battles commenced in those mountain valleys, with positions being seized after a careful assault, only to be lost again to counterattack, and then the process repeating over and over again. The superiority of Japanese artillery and air power, though, carried the day, and by May 20th, the passes were finally secured. Now finally came the time to hammer out some kind of official arrangement. Hirohito and the Japanese High Command had authorized an advance up to the Great Wall, but no further. That had been accomplished, and after the Mountain Pass battles, the Kwantung were probably genuinely willing to abide by that order. 
Tokyo, though, wanted to go further than a de facto halt. They wanted to force Chiang to make concessions that could be used as the basis of peace. On May 22nd, the two sides met in Tianjin to negotiate a formal truce. The conditions Chiang agreed to were harsh, as he again gave ground to better give himself time to prepare for a larger struggle to come. Also, the forces available in the north had been totally exhausted, and Japanese troops entering Beijing could have been a fatal blow to his delaying strategy. The Great Wall would be the boundary between China and Manchukuo, although the puppet state went officially unrecognized by China. The kicker, though, was a hundred-mile demilitarized zone south of the Great Wall, where no Chinese troops could enter, but Japanese ones could in order to patrol to ensure that the Chinese were keeping their end of the bargain. Zheng's guerrilla war had annoyed the Japanese to no end, and they wanted a clear zone on their borders so that the Chinese would not interfere with their development of Manchukuo. It also left northern China practically defenseless. The agreement became known as the Tongu Truce after the neighborhood of Tianjin the talks were held in. It was another humiliation for Cheng and left him little room for future concessions. For Japan, the truce again brought the conflict and how to proceed to the forefront. The Imperial Wei faction saw it as only a respite, a time to prepare for a genuine invasion of China, while the Control faction saw it as the basis of a long-term settlement, which will be a conflict they'll be covering in a couple weeks. For the moment, though, Manchukuo had been secured. The anti-bandit operations would become almost a national pastime, but as the years ticked by, Japanese control was secured. That does leave open the question, though, what the heck was the Manchukuan state supposed to be? And what was it in reality, too? Next week, I'll be wrapping up our stay in Manchuria with a look at the state of Manchukuo, its society, and its development. It's a big topic, as despite very much so being a Japanese protectorate, its economic importance alone would justify all the pain and misery the Japanese militarists would put into it. And I'm using the word justify from their perspective. You know what I mean. Anyway, join me then, and as always... Thank you very much for listening.